Well, over the past nine weeks, we have preached through the, the book of Titus, and, and this morning we bring that study to a close. In this short letter, Paul showed us, through showing Titus, how to set the church in order, how to set straight the things that are out of alignment so that we, the community of God's people, might thrive and flourish in spiritual health. We've seen that a healthy church will establish godly leadership. It will be grounded in sound doctrine and will defend against false doctrine. A healthy church will promote discipleship among the older and younger men and women. It will be centered and focused on the gospel of grace. And at the end of chapter 3, we'll see the end goal in all of this. That once a church is set in order, once a church is well aligned and straightened out, a flourishing church will be devoted to good works. In other words, we see the three D's of our mission here at River Oaks, that we want to declare the gospel, we want to make disciples, and we want to demonstrate the Father's love in word and deed. And this focus on good works is actually how Paul began this letter in the very first verse. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So Paul began by saying he wants us to know the truth that will lead to godliness. And he ends by saying those who have believed in God should be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is just the theme throughout the whole letter from beginning to end. So let's see how Paul concludes this short letter to Titus. Let's read in Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 8. These are the words of God. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis, or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, spe to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. <laughs> See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this final passage in the letter to Titus in a very similar way that Chris summarized the very first passage, that God's grace is a catalyst for good works. God's grace is a catalyst for good works. We'll see this in two different contrasts. We'll see devotion to good works 
in verse 8 and verses 12 through 15. And we'll see distractions to good works in verses 9 through 11. So first, let's look at devotion to good works. Paul ends this letter by showing Titus what a healthy church will look like. And it will look like devotion to good works. Again, we see that in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. So we should listen to what he's about to say. This is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So he's calling us to be devoted to good works. But if we want to live in light of this passage, we need to think through, what does that phrase even mean? Good works. I mean, think about it. What comes to your mind when you hear the word good works? If you're going to be devoted to good works, what does that actually look like? Well, we need to try to think through what, but what did Paul intend by that phrase. And I think he gives us some clues in verses 12 through 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So there's a lot of travel plans here. Artemis and Tychicus are coming to Crete, probably to replace Titus. And Titus is going to leave and meet up with with Paul, and Zenos and Apollos are also leaving Crete, probably for going to continued missionary work. But Paul tells Titus that the church in Crete should do their best to speed these missionaries along, to make sure that they lack nothing, to not be found unfruitful in cases of urgent need. Which gives us a clue into the good works Paul is talking about. I think we might assume the phrase good works would be things like maybe prayer or reading the Bible. And those two things are great, obviously. We need those spiritual disciplines. But sometimes I think we boil down the Christian life to, I just need to pray more, I just need to read the Word more. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that the Word of God is profitable to train us and equip us to be ready for every good work. Being in God's Word prepares us for good works. And so while those spiritual disciplines are important, The good works that Paul has in mind here are practical and tangible acts of love for one another. Practical and tangible acts of love for one another. That's why in verse 8 he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. People need these. And these good works come in so many varieties That's why back in verse 1, Paul used the phrase, every good work. That's an all-encompassing, comprehensive statement. So every good work can look like showing hospitality, 
Just checking in with someone, bringing someone a meal, sending an encouraging text, mowing a yard, watching someone's kids, giving them a ride, praying for someone in a thousand different ways. Good works can be done through a formal ministry, like our meals ministry or our C4 ministry. And if you want to get involved with those, those are great ways to be involved with good works. Talk to Ron Schreer. He just walked in. Isn't this great? <laughs> Not to embarrass you. Talk to Stephanie Porter. I won't do that to Stephanie. <laughs> but those are great ways to show good works. Or maybe it's, it's informal. Just as we love and serve one another in very simple, practical ways throughout the week. So they come in all shapes and sizes, and we do them according to our specific situations and giftings. But good works are practical and tangible acts of love for the people that God has put in close proximity to us. And I've seen this kind of love and this, this devotion to good works in this body recently with, with the fires in Ware's Valley. I know that uh, many of you, I saw it online, that many of you were saying, you know, I'm concerned about you know, our friends in the valley and, and about the ranch, and you're offering up your homes and your guest bedrooms for people who might need them. And even if your hospitality wasn't needed, your love and your devotion to good works was beautifully on display. But what, what motivates us? For these good works. I mean, think about all the commands that we've seen in the book of Titus. Even think about just chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Think about all of that. What motivates that? How do we live in light of that? What is the driving force behind our commitment to good works. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 8. Look at it again. He says, The same is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says to insist on these things. To insist on what things? Well, what he just described in the previous verses. The gospel he just proclaimed to us in verses 4 through 7. That glorious good news that Patrick preached to us last week. Look at it again, back in verse 4. I just love this passage. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that we've been redeemed by the goodness, the loving kindness, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus. That we've been saved, washed, regenerated, renewed, forgiven, justified, adopted, and made heirs of the hope of eternal life. And he makes clear, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by the works of Jesus, by the good work of his cross, the good work of his 
resurrection. And Paul says, insist on these things. Emphasize these things. Stress these things. Insist on the gospel. This is why we gladly use the term gospel-centered. We want everything that we do as a church to be centered and focused on the glorious reality of all that Christ has accomplished for us, his people. And we we insist on these things so that we would be devoted to good works. Did you catch that connection? Paul is saying that, that the more we delight in God's grace, the more we'll be devoted to good works. The the deeper your roots sink down into the redeeming love of God for you in Jesus, the more his fruit will blossom and flourish in your life. Remember, God's grace is a catalyst for good works. So let's think about how this works. Let's think about how this grace to good works dynamic plays out. So as we as we meditate and think deeply on the gospel, we should be thinking, God has been so kind to me. How could I not be kind to my neighbor? God has lavished his generosity on me. So now I want to lavish my generosity on others. I have been shown divine hospitality by God himself. So now I can, I can open up my home. I can open up my life to show hospitality to others. Jesus has treated me with such mercy and compassion. So now I can treat my neighbors, even my enemies, with a merciful compassion. The, the gracious love of God in Christ motivates us and fuels us and energizes us for a life devoted to good works. So let's do some some self-reflection. When you do something kind for someone, when when you serve them, why do you do that? Patrick had us think about this last week, but I just want us to keep pressing in. Think beyond your actions. Let's think about our motivations. What's, what's driving you? Are you doing good works to try to feel better about your life? Are you trying to get your, your good deed in for the day? Paying it forward with a random act of kindness. Do you do good to others, hoping that it will bring good back to you? Or are you you trying to earn points with God, trying to impress Him with how good you are, trying to, to earn His blessing through your hard work? Or do your good works flow from a heart transformed by the grace of God? Do your actions overflow from a life that's filled with gratitude for the great salvation of the cross? Are your good works a result of faith working through love? This is so important for us to think about because the grace of God frees us to learn to be devoted to good works. Did you notice that word learn in verse 14? Look at it with me again. 
and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Learning to be devoted to good works means that this is a process. We'll have successes and failures. We'll have wins and setbacks. We will have mixed motivations at times. Sometimes we will love others well. Other times, not so well. So even if you feel like you're stumbling around with showing good works, even if you would say, I don't know if devotion is the word that would describe me, even if your motivations are not 100% pure all the time, praise God, you're learning. Be encouraged. You are Learning, the grace of God frees us to enter into this learning process. Even when we fail at showing good works, we can get back up and keep moving forward because our successes and failures don't define us. Jesus' success defines us. And he has absolutely no failures. Not a single one. Salvation isn't a meritocracy. We are saved by His mercy, not by our merit. We are saved by the goodness of Jesus, not by our goodness. And this liberates us from our self-centeredness. This liberates us from our our navel-gazing introspection and it lifts our eyes so we can see the people around us respond in love to serve and meet their needs. Martin Luther once said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Christian, God doesn't need your good works, but the people around you, they do. God's grace is a catalyst for good works. But if God's grace is a catalyst, the next Paul is going to show us a sinkhole where good works go to die. So let's move from devotion to good works to distractions to good works. In verse 8, we saw that good works are profitable and excellent for people. But in verse 9, we see the exact opposite, things that are unprofitable and worthless. And what are these things? Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul gives us a list of things to avoid. (laughs) Foolish controversies. Just stirring up the hot-button issues of the day. Genealogies. Really, the, the, the ancient equivalent to a resume. And we are all just born with the innate skill of comparative analysis. Right? We love to compare ourselves. We can prop ourselves up while we knock others down a peg. Dissensions. Having a contentious spirit. Right? Someone who is always ready to fight. Always ready to jump into a conflict. Quarrels. A battle of words. Specifically here, quarrels about the law. Instead of having edifying, meaningful conversations about the word of God, they're using God's word as a sledgehammer. They're smashing each other. 
with God's word. These things are unprofitable and worthless. So let me give you some embarrassing backstory about me. I was saved, I was converted at the age of 16. And from the age of about 17 to 19, I became obsessed with two topics. End times prophecy and conspiracy theories. <laughs> really wouldn't suggest it. Not the best combination. <laughs> and I think back on those years truly with embarrassment. But at the time, I was into all the controversies all the conspiracies, all the quarrels about the Bible. I spent so much of my time researching things that just didn't matter. Almost everything I believed at that time, I can look back on it and say, I was wrong. It wasn't true. And even if it was, what good did it do? Did my supposed knowledge actually do anything good for the world, any good for the people around me? Was the UN Security Council going to come and ask the advice of a 17-year-old punk in East Tennessee? I don't think so. Do you know how I would describe those two years? I would use Paul's words. Unprofitable and worthless. Do you know how much I, I served the people around me during those years? How much good I was doing for God's people and God's mission? Practically nothing. For the most part, it was a wasted two years. And that's because these things, controversies, quarrels, dissensions, they're all distractions to good works. They get us off track. They derail us and distract us from our mission to spread the gospel and advance God's kingdom. And sadly, we are a easily distracted people. Just think about social media. Online marketers know that if we see a cute picture of a bunny, we'll stop and look at it for a few seconds. If we see a funny meme, we'll chuckle and move on. Michaela, always sending me good memes. Thank you. Of all the spiritual gifts Michaela has, <laughs> memes, are, it's up there. But if we see a controversial post, we'll get enraged. And therefore, we'll get engaged. The algorithms are literally designed to fuel verse 9, to stoke the fire of quarrels and controversies. But those algorithms, they aren't merely influencing us, they're exposing us. They're exposing our addiction to controversy. They're exposing our obsession with outrage. They're exposing our sense of superiority that comes from proving someone else is wrong all the while we can signal our virtue to everyone else that we're in the right. 
But how much good does our outrage actually do in the world? Practically nothing. These are distractions from good works. But the problem is worse than simply distraction. This actually leads to division. Look at verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That word for a person who stirs up division, it can literally mean an opinionated sectarian. An opinionated sectarian. That is, someone who divides the church up into cliques and sects and tribes and subgroups all based on mere opinion. It's good to have your opinions. It's good to have you know, your opinions on, on politics and culture and all kinds of things. It would be good to discuss those things when we have healthy and productive conversations. But if you exalt your opinions over and against God's word, and if you exalt your personal preferences over and against love for neighbor, you are in a dangerous place. We desperately need to hear this. So hear me. If you exalt your opinions over and, event, over and against the word of God, and if you exalt your personal preferences over and against the love for neighbor, you are in a dangerous place. So think about this. With your unbelieving friends, what are you more excited to talk about? The latest piece of controversy in the news cycle? Or Jesus? What is more exciting to talk about? Because it, it's deeply detrimental when we form tribes and echo chambers where, where it's not enough for us to simply follow the same Savior. But we need to hold the exact same opinions as well. And those who disagree with us, those are the enemies, those are the bad guys. This is toxic tribalism. And it results every time in tribal warfare. But believer... Christ died that we would be one body. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are called to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And even if we have nothing else in common, we are a community that has Christ in common so we can live as a united people stirring one another up to love and good works. But quarrels... And controversies, they, they distract us and they divide us and derail us from our God-given calling and purpose. This is such a, a serious issue that Paul tells Titus that church discipline is the appropriate response to setting straight the divisions in the church. He refers back to, to Jesus' words in Matthew 18. that After giving someone multiple warnings after pleading with them to repent once and then twice with 
just you and them, and then with multiple people. Finally, you bring it to the church, and if they still are digging their heels and they still refuse to repent, they must be disfellowshipped, removed from the church, treated as an unbeliever. And that's not harsh. That's done out of love. Out of love for the church, out of love for that individual's soul. Paul says they're self-condemned. He's saying you don't condemn them, they're self-condemned. They've done this themselves. And I wish we could spend more time on this topic of church discipline. We could just spend a, a huge amount of time talking about this topic, but if you want to dig in further, just spend time studying 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18. So give you a little homework. Bob Payer preached uh, a sermon on this back in 2009, uh, which, by the way, shows that our biblical convictions on this topic hasn't changed. They won't change. That sermon is called The Sons Love Church Discipline. If you haven't ever listened to that, it is worth your time. I think we'll post it later in the week. But Paul's point is this. These distractions, these divisions... There's such a big deal that people who stir them up must be removed from the fellowship of God's people through loving and corrective church discipline. This is not a trivial issue. This is not a trivial issue at all. And I think that, that we can all admit that at some level, we love to go down the rabbit hole of distractions. We drift towards dividing ourselves up into tribes and cliques based on mere opinions. But, but why? Why do we love it so much? Why are we so enthralled with controversy and outrage? Why do we care so much about things that matter so little? And we care so little about the flesh and blood people right around us. I think fundamentally it's because we want to. We want to be distracted. We want to be comfortable. We want to avoid difficulty. But loving people can be difficult. Serving other people can be awkward and frustrating. A life devoted to good works isn't always easy. In fact, it normally isn't easy. So we distract ourselves instead. We entertain ourselves to death and we argue about pointless, trivial controversies to try to feel better about ourselves. We, we signal our virtue by supporting the right causes and getting upset at the right issues, but all of that virtue signaling is an attempt to hide our lack of virtue, to cover up our own imperfections. But the gospel of grace, the gospel of our Savior empowers us. It liberates us to move in a different direction. So let's look at the very last verse of this letter. Look at verse 15 with me. Don't skip over this verse. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. 
Paul ends this book with grace. And this is where he started. Look back at Titus 1, verse 4. (laughs) To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He begins and ends with grace. This isn't a mere formality. This isn't just a generic way for Paul to open and close a letter. If we're going to pursue devotion to good works and avoid distractions to good works, then we need the free gift of God's grace to be with us from beginning to end. From our first breath to our last breath. Remember Titus 2. It's the grace of God that trains us. We need grace all the way down and we need grace all the way up. We are a people who desperately rely on the grace of God. Not only saving grace, but strengthening grace and stabilizing grace and sustaining grace and sanctifying grace. Church, God's grace really is a catalyst for good works. The grace of God is the only power strong enough to free us from the distractions and the divisions that so entangle our hearts. God's grace can rewire our desires. God's grace can reorder our affections so that we can stop believing the empty promises of this world and start pursuing the exceeding joy that's found in God and in God alone. Dear believer, the grace of Jesus has set you free from the impossible burden of earning God's favor. Jesus Christ has set you free from the impossible burden of earning God's favor. So now you can use your blood-bought freedom to serve those around you in love. Remember, God doesn't need your good works. But just look around you. Your neighbor does. So as we bring our study of Titus to a close, let's ask our gracious God to strengthen us with the all-satisfying riches of His grace that we might thrive and flourish as a church ready for every good work for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. We thank You for the gift of Paul's letter to Titus. We pray that these few months spent together in this book would be changing for us, would be transformative for us, that we wouldn't be hearers of the word only, but doers. But we know that we can only be doers of the word. We can only be equipped and ready for every good work if your grace empowers us. And you have promised us in your word that you give more grace. So please, Richly pour out your grace upon us. We know that in Jesus there is grace upon grace. So empower us. Now lead us to continue to worship now. For the glory of your great name. Amen. So before we sing, I want to remind you that today is Palm Sunday. It's the first day of Holy Week. 
This is the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, our humble king. So let's read John's account of this event in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, just to prepare our hearts as we continue to worship. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So church, let's stand and worship our king. <laughs> 